Welcome to the Calvary Podcast, Lenten Preaching Edition, a ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church, recorded live in Memphis. The Calvary Podcast is weekly sermons, but also conversations, reflections, and provocations about the mystery of God and what it means to be human in the world in need of repair. have two sons. And when they were younger, sometimes they would fight. And when they would do this in public, I would often be greeted by a surprising response from other mothers. They'd look at me and say, either with their words or with their expressions, thank God Rabbi Judy's kids fight too. My friend Drew, she raised four boys. And the youngest one used to wear a t-shirt I loved. It said, it's my brother's fault. In fact, they had a family photo with all four boys wearing the exact same shirt. But the truth is, we don't even need to have siblings to deny responsibility. We are all too comfortable blaming others. It's my parents' fault, we might say, or my spouse's fault or my co-worker's fault or the fault of Memphis's or America's governing structure or it's the fault of Israeli or Palestinian leadership. We simply fill in the blank and we pass the buck. Sibling fighting and family alienations go back to our biblical first families as we know. Cain kills Abel. Ishmael is cast out from his home, exiled from his brother Isaac. Jacob steals Esau's birthright and blessing. And Joseph, Joseph is cast into a pit and sold into slavery by his brothers. Relationships are hard. Obstacles to love abound. Yet reconciliation is possible, and that is the journey of Lent. How incredibly honored I am to be a part of this Lenten preaching series. My good friend and profoundly gifted Rabbi Micah Greenstein tells me how great your city is, and finally I get to enjoy it, your hospitality, your music, your fun, and the seriousness with which you take your faith. My previous visits to Memphis were for just less than 24 hours, and now I have four full days, and how impressed I am by your church and your city and your leadership, your reverends, and especially Heidi Rupke, who is on top of every last detail. The 40 days of Lent are about confronting alienations and working towards reconciliation. The 40 days of Lent are about reflection, reevaluation, renewal, return, reunion. And they mirror our journey of 40 days from the first of the Hebrew month of Elul through Yom Kippur, our day of atonement. You see, our 40 days as Jews is grounded in the story of the Israelites worshiping a golden calf. And Moses comes down from the mountain of Sinai with the first set of tablets and shatters the tablets reflecting the shattering of our marriage to God. 
And Moses ascends Mount Sinai a second time for 40 days of repentance and receives on our behalf a second set of tablets and a second chance. You see, siblings fight and people fight. And as Jews, we even argue with God. Holy anger, I might call it, but holy anger can fuel the path to healing. In one of my favorite poems, a man by the name of Aaron Zeitlin, a Holocaust survivor, shares his debate with God. How could Zeitlin not challenge God in the face of the Holocaust where, where 6 million Jews were murdered, among them 1.5 million children? Zeitlin wrote, praise me, says God, and I will know that you love me. Curse me, says God, and I will know that you love me. Praise me or curse me, says God, and I will know that you love me. Sing out my graces, says God. Raise your fist against me and revile, says God. Sing out graces or revile. Reviling is also praise, says God. But if you sit fenced off in your apathy, says God, if you sit entrenched in I don't give a darn, if you look at the stars and you yawn, if you see suffering and do not cry out, then I created you in vain, says God. Elie Wiesel, another renowned survivor, tells of a time when the prisoners in Auschwitz actually put God on trial for breaking the covenant with the Israelites. But you are already here. You've come to this church to return perhaps to return to a conversation with, with God, perhaps to return to a conversation with yourselves, or perhaps to return to a conversation with other human beings. You see, relationships are difficult, and impediments abound on the road to reconciliation. You see, obstacles to love with others, they start at a super young age. So I remember this time I was a, a new young rabbi entering White Plains Hospital to make pastoral visits, and I saw this little boy, four years old, absolutely devastated in the lobby. And to be honest, I thought that perhaps this child had lost his parent. So I asked the caregiver, is there anything I can help you with? And the caregiver explained that this little boy's mother had just given birth to the little boy's baby sister. Just, just the birth of a sibling threw this little boy into turmoil. His baby sister hadn't done anything yet but be born and breathe. Laws exist only because a given action has disrupted relationships or society or caused upheaval. So what does it say about us as human beings that laws exist in virtually every faith tradition requiring love. It says that hate causes harm and love is demanding. Love God, Deuteronomy enjoins us, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, with everything that you have. Love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus commands. Love the stranger, Deuteronomy again demands, for we know what it was like to be those strangers 
in the land of Egypt. And 1 Corinthians, of course, adds that love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't delight in evil. It protects. It trusts. It hopes. It perseveres. Put it simply, love is hard, and obstacles to love start with the voices inside our heads. Here's what I mean. It was a decade ago when I attended the first meeting of a Muslim Jewish women's dialogue group. And as I sat down at the table, I saw the woman's name tag across from me. She had a provocative name. Her name was Jihad, which means holy war, a battle in the struggle with God. My inner voice immediately started to boom. I asked myself, who in the world would name their daughter Jihad? And what would it be like to go through life with such a name? I forced myself to listen, and I learned that Jihad was given her name during what we as Jews call Israel's War of Independence. Her father was fighting in that war, and he came home, and her grandmother asked him, what do we name your newborn daughter? And he said, there is no time for naming. We're in the midst of Jihad, a holy war. That's how Jihad got her name. The Palestinians lost the war, and many Palestinian families, including Jihad's, would lose their homes. But hearing her story felt like an attack on the Jewish people. My inner voice cried out to itself, trying to silence her voice with my own story. You do not understand, my heart cried out. The Arabs, they, they failed to accept compromises that would have created peace and our own Jewish world experienced such great loss and pain. In my mind, I recounted the Holocaust, which murdered a, a large segment of my own family. You see, I was named after my grandfather's sister, Judith Schindler, who was murdered by the Nazis when she was just 32 years old. And in 2018, while I was visiting Berlin, I saw the Stolpersteiner, the stumbling stones in the sidewalk, these four-inch by four-inch bronze cubes memorializing her family. They were outside the home in the playground where she lived. Her stone read, Here lives, or here lived Judith Steinberg, born Judith Schindler, 1910. Deported on September 5th, 1942 to Riga. Murdered September 8th, 1942. And next to her was a stone for her husband, Rabbi Elazar Steinberg. He was 34 years old, and underneath their two stones were five stones for their five children ranging in ages from 10 to 2 all deported on the same transport with 783 other people to Riga. A three-day journey. The ghetto in Riga was not ready, so they were marched out to a forest, and they were shot. So my heart and mind wondered, how could I relate to Jihad's story when, and to her pain and to her perspective when I carried with me my own immense pain? Could, could I... Could I really expect Jihad, a, a proud Palestinian, to see Israel, her people's adversary, for the country it had meant to me 
and my fellow Jews. It was a haven, a home, a revitalized nation for which we'd been given international sanctions for sovereignty. Now, Jihad and I could have continued along that path of two people sitting across a table for one an- from one another, allowing our names or our garb or the flags we hold dear to stop us in our tracks, to prevent us from hearing each other and listening to each other, no less loving each other. But something called in us to reach out, to exchange phone numbers, to meet for coffee and conversation. And today I know Jihad as a caring pharmacist and a loving and proud mother of six children and 14 grandchildren. And more importantly, I've also had the understand, time to understand her pain and her voice. So overcoming those obstacles to love, they require turning down the voices inside our own heads so we can listen to the voice of another person. My 20-year-old son, Maxwell, he is exceptional in this realm. He will strike up a conversation with anybody and with everybody. When he was just a toddler, perhaps even one year old, I didn't have to worry about him being sort of taken away by a stranger, abducted. I had to worry about him willingly walking away with a stranger he had made into a friend. But perhaps we need to live with that same curiosity and openness of a toddler. So when you hear your inner voice creating narratives about the person who is next to you, covered in tattoos or with a head covering or in a wheelchair, or in torn and tattered clothing or with a flashy diamond ring, show interest in that neighbor. Find common ground with that person Talk about the restaurant you're in, or the city you live in, or the dog that person is walking. See difference as having value. Because if we do not hear our neighbor's voice, but only listen to our own internal conversations, then we create false narratives. Our assumptions create distance, friction, and fear, and sadly and tragically can lead, in some cases, to violence. My experiences with jihad taught me that overcoming those obstacles to love, it requires vulnerability and empathy and courage. Reconciliation first requires vulnerability. It requires going to places you don't usually go to, to new neighborhoods, to new restaurants, to new churches, to new cultural events. Overcoming obstacles to love require talking to new people, sitting not with those we know at the waffle shop, but inviting to our tables people we do not yet know. Overcoming obstacles to love requires having uncomfortable conversations. A 2015 study noted that Memphis is in the top five cities when it comes to having the most religious venues per capita. Charlotte was number eight. 
In our city of Charlotte, we have 1,000 houses of worship. And most of them are Christian, but they vary as greatly as the 160 countries from which our county's students public, in public schools come from. And your city is even more religiously diverse than my city. So it shouldn't be a surprise to us that religion is used to divide us, often breeding ignorance and creating a perception of danger and greater distance. So the only antidote is coming together to understand our differences so that we can find common ground. Dr. Diana Eck at Harvard Divinity School, she said, if you only know one religion, you don't know any. Overcoming obstacles to love requires empathy, the ability to understand your neighbor's pain. So several years ago, I received an email asking if any clergy would be willing to be part of a support network for a mother, Mrs. Georgia Farrell, who is going through the trial of an officer who was being charged with excessive force that led to the death of her, her unarmed 21-year-old son. On the first day of the trial, I offered to take this mother out to lunch. And I arrived at the courtroom an hour beforehand, and I listened as the defense put not the officer on trial, but they put Jonathan's character on trial. You see, yes, Jonathan had been hanging out with friends, and he'd been driving home, and his car turned into a ditch going around a curve. And Jonathan made it out of the car, and he knocked on the door closest by. And no one blames the mother, who was alone with a child for opening the door and then calling the police because she was scared. But a young, new officer was scared when he arrived at the scene and made the decision to shoot Jonathan, who was unarmed, 12 times, even after he was down. So when the court broke for lunch, I saw Mrs. Farrell, and I, I went up and I introduced myself to her, and she introduced me to her whole large group with her of family and friends. And so I said, Mrs. Farrell, since you have so much family here today, why don't I come back another day? And she said, Rabbi Judy, you are family. And we became family through that trial, and we remain family today. But the truth is, we are family with all our neighbors, and our lives would be so much richer and more beautiful if we recognize that. And lastly, overcoming the obstacles to loving our neighbor requires courage. It requires the courage to stand up for others and to help break down those obstacles that are preventing our neighbors from living their lives with safety and with security. You see, once we listen to our neighbors and once we empathize, we are moved to act and to create change for them. This notion was underscored for me on International Holocaust Remembrance Day in 2016. It was January 27th, 2017, actually. And it happened to be the day when there was the first presidential executive order on immigration 
barring citizens from seven Muslim-majority countries from entering the U.S. for 90 days. That was Friday, January 27th, and on Saturday, January 28th, a mosque in Victoria, Texas, was burnt to the ground. And someone posted on Facebook, and you're responsible when they do this, they tagged me and they said, Rabbi Judy, what can we do? And then on the next day, a shooter went into a, a mosque in Quebec City and killed six and wounded eight who were in the midst of prayer. And a friend, a Muslim female leader, she wrote me and she explained that the next Wednesday was World Hijab Day, where women, both Muslim and non-Muslim, were invited to wear hijabs for the day and stand in solidarity with their Muslim sisters and after so many protests, putting on a hijab sounded sort of easy to me. And so what did I do? I went onto YouTube to learn how to tie a hijab. And I went into my closet and I grabbed a scarf and I tied it. My son took a photo of me and I posted it and I invited everyone to put on a hijab for World Hijab Day. And my students in my Holocaust class Four of the women, they said, Rabbi Judy, can we go with you to the rally uptown? And they tied beautiful hijabs, and they were perfectly made up, and they brought signs with them. One of the signs said, I am my sister's keeper. And another sign said, no hate, no fear, refugees are welcome here. And so we get up to the rally, and at that rally, I reconnected with my friend Jihad, who I hadn't seen for a while. And she was so grateful that I brought my students. And she brought me around to meet her children and grandchildren, and she said proudly, this is Rabbi Judy. Now, a rabbi wearing a hijab on World Hijab Day elicited profound expressions of gratitude from many people. But for others, seeing a rabbi in a hijab stirred feelings that played to their worst instincts. I received hate mail. I received hate mail from some Christian evangelicals calling on me to convert to Christianity. And then I received a threat from someone whose religious affiliation I do not know. They called my temple and said, I hope that Rabbi Judy gets raped. The police got involved, and I had to learn how to look in my rearview mirror driving home to make sure that nobody was following me. You see, standing with courage to advocate for your neighbors can be scary at times. But failing to summon the courage to stand for your neighbor creates a world which is far more scary, a world where we fail to find the common ground that binds us. Siblings fight, and siblings reconcile. Isaac and Ishmael came together to bury their father Abraham. Jacob and Esau, after 20 years of alienation, are reunited, and Jacob sends ahead gifts to his brother Esau, and they come together, and Esau embraces his brother and kisses him, and they weep. And Esau wants to return that gift of giving 
uh, that favor of giving gifts. And Jacob refuses. Jacob says, Yeshli, Cole, I don't need your gift. I have everything. Because you see, that wholeness and peace that comes with reconciliation is everything. It is far more than money can buy. And Joseph, once cast into a pit by his 11 brothers and sold into slavery, years later is reunited with his brothers. And he cries out, Ani, Yosef, I am Joseph, your brother. And those same words were used by the late Pope John Twenty-Third. Now, there are many great stories about Pope John Twenty-Third. Once he was asked, he was asked how many people work at the Vatican. And this roly-poly Pope said, about half of them. <laughs> On another occasion, Pope John XXIII, he welcomed a delegation of Jewish leaders by saying, Ani Yosef, I am Joseph, your brother. And this pope embodied the courage of reconciliation when in 1962 he started the second ecumenical council called Vatican II, addressing interfaith but especially Catholic-Jewish relations. And Pope Paul VI concluded the work in 1965 with a world-changing declaration called Nostra Aetate, which means in our time. It stated that in our time, Jews can no longer be held collectively responsible for the death of Jesus. For centuries, Jews had lived in fear of persecution and pogroms in this time leading up to Easter, when passion plays would be performed. Yet this pope spoke out and called on the church's leadership to teach and preach in ways that protect their Jewish siblings from hate and from harm. Brothers and sisters of families can reconcile. Brothers and sisters of faith can reconcile. Brothers and sisters of humanity can reconcile. In our time, too, reconciliation is possible between Christian and Jew and Muslim and Palestinian and Israeli and Republican and Democrat. The list of rifts and reconciliations that are needed is long. And it starts simply with a cup of coffee, with a conversation, with listening, with vulnerability, with empathy, and with courage. I close with my favorite story that highlights reconciliation. A rabbi in a yeshiva, an academy, once asked his students, how do you know when night has ended and day has begun? How do you know that moment, right, when you've stayed up all night as a college student and it is already morning? So one student raised his hand and said, you know that night has ended and day has begun when you can tell a goat from a sheep there's enough light to see the difference. And another student raised his hand and said, you know night has ended and day has begun when you can tell a fig tree from an olive tree. And the rabbi, the teacher, said those are all great answers. But I believe when you see 
three men walking towards you, and one is light-skinned, and one is olive-skinned, and one is dark-skinned, and you say, these, these are my brothers. And when you see three women walking towards you, and one is Muslim, and one's Jewish, and one's Christian, and you say, these, these are my sisters, then night has truly ended, and day has begun. So may we each work to bring about that day of reconciliation, that peace, that love, and that light of day that we so desperately seek and so desperately need. Amen. The Calvary Podcast theme music was composed by Spence Bailey. Special thanks to Robin Banks, Director of Communications at Calvary, and Heidi Rupke, Lenten Preaching Series Coordinator. And thanks to you for listening. If you're curious about Calvary Episcopal Church, we are an eclectic bunch of Christian people who don't all think the same thoughts or dress the same way or vote for the same candidates or even believe all the same things about the mystery of God and what it means to be human. But we do believe that we need each other because of our differences, not in spite of them, and that God calls us into unity, not uniformity. Subscribe to the Calvary Podcast at calvarymemphis.org slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Calvary in person at the corner of 2nd and Adams in the heart of downtown Memphis, Tennessee.